So we're going to be uh, turning again today to Matthew chapter 5 and continuing our look through the Beatitudes of our Lord from probably his most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. And just as a reminder, you know, these Beatitudes are those, those blessed are statements, those happier are statements that describe not the things that we need to work up so that we can work our way into the kingdom, but rather they are the attitudes and expressions and examples of the type of character that flows out of a man or a woman who's already in the kingdom. Right, so like th that they're poor in spirit because the Holy Spirit has caused them to see their own sinfulness. Uh, a sinfulness that they mourn over, uh, not to the point of hopelessness or despair, but with a self-controlled meekness of heart that causes them to hunger and thirst for a righteousness from outside of themselves. A righteousness that makes them long more and more to see the purification of their hearts and that prompts them to a desire to live in peace, not only with God, but with their fellow brothers and sisters in Christ that they walk through life with. And to be at peace with the world around us as far as that is possible. The unfortunate part is that's not always possible, is it? And then that takes us to where we're going to pick up today uh, with the final two verses of this section. And so please, if you will, turn in your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 5, and I'm going to be reading verses 1 through 12. So listen, please, for the voice of the Spirit. Seeing the crowds, he, of course, meeting Jesus, went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord to us today. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father God, enlighten us. We pray, cleanse us from any barriers in heart or mind today that may stop us from feeling your presence or from hearing your word. And teach us, we ask, by your Holy Spirit, because we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we jump into this last section of the Beatitudes, I think it's kind of important to, to stop here and take note that, you know, with all the other Beatitudes we looked at, that Jesus speaks to the idea of something internal which is meant to flow out from us, to flow out from the lives of a genuine believer. But today, there's an intentional shift as he moves now to speak about what we should expect to happen, not from us, but to us, if we are, in fact, citizens of the kingdom of God. And if you remember, as we've seen, Jesus didn't just uh, string these sayings together haphazardly. He wasn't just pulling together a list of adjectives for believers as they came to mind but rather he was stringing them together very carefully like the links in a chain. And so the one that we come to today is no accident, but it's rather the apex of the model that he's been building since the beginning of this sermon. And it is by far the most significant. One commentator said of this, this beatitude concerning persecution 
more than any of the others will divide between those living for God and those playing a game. Because you cannot respond in the manner Jesus describes of being joyful in the midst of persecution unless your life is first characterized by a righteousness of heart. Because you know, as the old saying goes, you can fool all of the people some of the time and some of the people all of the time, but you can't fool all of the people all of the time. And persecution is where those cracks start to show. It's where the secrets of people's hearts begin to be revealed and the true loves of their lives exposed. And you begin to see maybe for the first time those who are really in the faith and those who are not. Because, you know, guys, like, just think about this. It's super easy to sit here on a Sunday morning and sing hymns and listen to great music like those folks played and, and say amen if you hear something you like and smile at other folks around you. But would you still do that if there was a chance you could be arrested for it? Would you still do it if it were declared illegal? Would you still make a stand for your faith if you knew it would cost you your job? Would you still find a way to gather for worship with us if it cost you your reputation? Or your social standing in your park or with your community of friends? Or, or would you turn your back on the Lord and deny him and do whatever you needed to do to escape that kind of persecution? And like my old Good News Club teacher used to say, if you were on trial for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? Because as sad as it is to think about, in a church of this size, it's not only statistically possible, but entirely likely that there are people in this room who are still lost in their sins and who are believers in name only. That was true of the crowd that Jesus preached to, and it's equally true for us today. And don't forget, Jesus was not just preaching to multitudes. He was talking to his own men. He was talking to his core group, the folks he had called aside from the world. And he's reminding them that just being a part of this physical group does not automatically make you a believer. Like Pastor Billy Sunday used to say, sitting in church doesn't make you a Christian any more than sitting in a garage makes you an automobile. Right? You could walk down the aisle. You get baptized. You could go to church every single day of your life, but that does not dictate if you are a Christian or not. But persecutions, persecutions will sort that out really quick. It'll start to draw a really hard line as to the difference between what theologians call the visible church and the invisible church. And we've talked about this a bunch before, so I'm not going to plow that field again. But for the sake of those maybe hearing this for the first time, the visible church is all the folks you see around you when we gather here for worship. It's all the people in all the various churches around the world on the Lord's Day. But the invisible church is the true church. It's the one that only God sees when he looks over us all. That's comprised of just actual born-again believers. And humanly speaking, you and I can't tell who's in which group, right? I mean, I can't see into your heart, and you can't see into mine, but persecution sure can. And if you think about it, actually, we've just lived through, to a small degree, that kind of persecution with the COVID scandemic. You know, the time when the government said that vast segments of society should be shut down, but not the liquor stores, or the abortion mills, or the marijuana clinics. Shut down for a virus so deadly that people were blocked from visiting their loved ones in hospitals and nursing homes, but not from burning down whole city blocks in Portland, and Denver, and Minneapolis. And don't mishear me, COVID-19 was and still is a serious condition. Please don't, please don't hear me saying anything else. In some cases, it still is serious. But in the words of one former Obama advisor, Rahm Emanuel, he said, never let a good crisis go to waste. And they didn't. 
Instead, the woke politicians laid waste to a lot of things in this world and in our culture that may never fully come back. And one of those things was churches. But, but yet, in the spirit of today's beatitude, there is a bright side because the close-ups and the lockdowns of a lot of American congregations revealed to a watching world who were the sheep and who were the goats. It revealed those who had a heart to worship King Jesus and those who were just as content with no church to go to. It revealed those who were perfectly satisfied with an arm's length participation on their own terms, just remotely listening in instead of willingly, actively gathering physically and unselfishly with their fellow believers and brothers and sisters and seeking to pour back into others the same kind of love that they themselves have received. It reminded me of something I uh, heard another pastor say, and many of you have heard me repeat this, that the advent of the pandemic was like being at the ocean when the tide goes out because you can see who's been swimming naked, right? And brothers and sisters, there were whole denominations and churches and individuals who were quite literally caught with their pants down during the pandemic. Scores and scores of people who have been naked for a long time and we just didn't know it. Denominations and churches and individual Christians who were naked of Christ and stripped of sound doctrine and denuded of biblical preaching, and it's more out in the open now than in any other previous era of the American church. And the saddest part is, it sure didn't take much, relatively speaking. Nothing, in fact, compared to the persecutions and trials experienced by the first and second century Christian ancestors of ours. Who, who here has read Fox's Book of Martyrs? Okay. If, you, if you've never read, Fo there's probably a picture up there. If you've never read Fox's Book of Martyrs, I commend it to you. It really is a must read, not only for those interested in church history, but for every believer. And I want to share with you a story from it by way of illustration, a true story, uh, of one of probably the greatest Christian martyrs named Polycarp of Smyrna. And I'll give you just a, a tiny little bit of background so you know what I'm talking about. If you, you might remember the city of Smyrna from the book of Revelation. I got a letter from Jesus, but... The city of Smyrna, uh, as you can see on the map that's going to be up there, uh, was located on the Aegean Sea. Uh, and because of its location, it was considered the kind of the gateway from Rome to Europe and the Middle East. And it had a long history of ties to Rome, including a very ancient association and a temple to the pagan goddess Roma, who kind of personified the city of Rome and more broadly the Roman state. And so it was a pretty obvious choice for Smyrna and its citizens to be completely dedicated to the worship of the emperor and the imperial cult. And that cult had just one rule. Citizens were required to enter the, the pagan Roman temple just once a year, and take a little pinch of incense and throw it on the flames in the altar and proclaim Kaiser Kyrios, Caesar is Lord. Right? They could go on from there and do anything else they wanted to. They could worship any other gods they wanted to worship or no God at all, as long as they gave their yearly obedience to the God of the state. That's it. That's all they had to do. And they'd get back this little paper certificate, and they'd be on their way, right? A certificate that had to be renewed annually and one that they'd need to show if they wanted to go out in public and if they wanted to be a part of polite society and if they wanted to shop in the stores and eat in restaurants because, incidentally, most Greek and Roman city dwellers actually did eat in restaurants because it was easier than maintaining a home kitchen. And different groups of folks looked at that pinch of incense differently. Uh, some were genuinely saying, yes, I acknowledge the emperor is a god. 
Some were simply saying, okay, I, you know, I'm willing to acknowledge the legal authority of the government. And some thought, well, hey, I'm willing to say the emperor is a god because I care about national unity. And of course, my own prosperity. So hey, why not? What could I lose? But you can see immediately what a dilemma that presented for the Christians. And don't get the wrong idea. The Christians of that era were willing to acknowledge the legal authority of the Roman government and the position of the emperor as head of that government. And they wanted to do their part and they wanted to be good citizens and conduct their civic duty to work for the prosperity and the security of their neighbors. All of that. But they couldn't and they wouldn't say that the emperor or that the state was God or offer any kind of worship to him or the state, however small that gesture may be. And when they refused, and they did refuse, guess what happened? They were accused of jeopardizing the stability of the community. They were accused of hating their neighbors. They were accused of being part of a cult or being involved in a conspiracy against the government. And that's what happened to a man named Polycarp. It was the year 155, so we're talking about, about 120 years from the death and resurrection of our Lord. And so, so this man is living during one of the most formative eras of the church at the end of the age of the original apostles when the church was making a critical transition into the second generation of believers. Polycarp was an elderly man at the time. Actually, he was old enough that as a younger man, he had personally known the apostle John, who had briefly been his teacher and mentor. And this is how, how Fox's uh, book records the story. This is what it relates it says, Polycarp was the venerable bishop of Smyrna. Hearing that persons were seeking him, he escaped, but was later discovered. The police then came out as if coming out against a robber. They found Polycarp lying down in the upper room of a cottage. Could have escaped, but he refused. When Polycarp heard they had come, he went downstairs. He spoke with the officers, and immediately he called for food and drink for them and asked for an hour to pray uninterrupted before his arrest. They agreed, but he stood and prayed so full of the grace of God that he couldn't stop for two hours. And the men that came to arrest him were astounded, and many of them regretted they had come to arrest such a godly and venerable old man. When he finished praying, they put him on a donkey and took him into the city where the proconsul there asked him whether he was, in fact, the Bishop Polycarp. On hearing that he was, the proconsul tried to persuade him to apostatize his faith. And he said, sir, have respect for your old age. Swear by the fortunes of Caesar and I'll release you. Reproach Christ and I'll set you free. And I love his answer. Polycarp answered, 80 and 6 years have I served him and he never once wronged me. How then shall I blaspheme my king who hath saved me? The proconsul said, I have wild animals here, and I'll throw you to them if you don't recant your faith. Polycarp replied, it's unthinkable for me to repent from what is good to turn to what is evil. And I'll be glad to go through those animals, even if just to be changed from this old body into a righteous one. The proconsul said, if you don't fear the animals, I'll have you burned. To which Polycarp replied, you threaten me with fire, which burns for an hour and is then extinguished. But you know nothing of the fire of the coming judgment and eternal punishment reserved for the ungodly. What are you waiting for? Bring on whatever you want. At that, the crowds collected wood and bundles of sticks. And when the pile was ready, they went to affix Polycarp to it with nails. But he said, leave me as I am, for he that gives me strength to endure the fire 
will enable me not to struggle without the help of your nails. So they simply bound him with his hands behind his back. Polycarp looked to heaven, and this is recorded by witnesses what he prayed. He prayed, Lord God Almighty, the Father of your beloved Son, Jesus Christ, I give you thanks that you count me worthy to be numbered among your martyrs, sharing the cup of Christ and the resurrection to eternal life, both of body and soul, through the immortality of the Holy Spirit. And may I be received this day as you have predestined and now fulfilled. He prayed, I praise you for these things and glorify you along with the everlasting Jesus Christ, your beloved to you with him through the Holy Ghost be glory both now and forever. And when he said amen, the wind caused the flames already leaping upon their kindling to encircle him like an arch without touching him. The executioner on seeing that was ordered to pierce him with a sword at which such a great quantity of blood flowed out as extinguished the fire. But his body at the instigation of those who hated the gospel was ordered to be rekindled and at the request of his friends, his bones and his remains as much as possible were collected for a decent interment. And now, brothers and sisters, you and I may never be called upon to be martyrs. I pray that we aren't. But the Bible is clear and says, in fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. But it also promises, even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you'll be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ as Lord Honor him as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that's in you. And yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. For it's better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. And please don't miss that point. Real biblical persecution is for doing good, is not for being a jerk, right? There's way too many people who run around and try to play the victim, cry about being persecuted, when the truth is they're the ones at fault. And here's a good rule of thumb for you. If you are always at odds with other people and you go around thinking you're somehow better than they are, you're not persecuted, you're the problem. But for the genuine Christ follower, for the true believer, I want to give you some real-world tips to handle persecution if that time comes. The tips we can actually take from the example of Polycarp, and number one, is look heavenward. One author said of this, cultivate a regular attentiveness to the other world, to the world of heaven where Christ is and his rewards are, where all the saints are, where all the sorrows will be taken away, and where we will sin no more and where pain and depression will be over. Right? It's why 2 Corinthians 4 says, we look not to the things that are seen, but to things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient but the things that are unseen are eternal. And so cultivate that mindset that leads you heavenward. Number two, remember what things are worse than death. Matthew 10, Jesus says, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Because brothers and sisters, there are some things that are way worse than death. And number four, know that suffering is not surprising. So keep it clear in your mind that suffering and death for Christ uh, are, are not unusual. In this world, they're normal. They're expected. That's why 1 Peter 4 says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that's coming upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. One commentator put it like this. He said, Develop the mindset that such tests are not extraordinary, 
but are biblically ordinary. Right? Such tests are not extraordinary, but biblically ordinary. And number four, meditate on Christ as gain. Meditate regularly on the truth of Philippians 1 that says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, yet which shall I choose? I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two because my desire is to part and be with Christ. So pray for that every day. And finally, and, and lastly, and quickly, I would say, of course, pray for help. And of course, this is beyond any of us, as we talked about in Sunday school this morning, having the faith to endure persecution, humanly speaking. But modeling the words of the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 6, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. And also for me that the words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. And brothers and sisters, may that be true of all of us who are persecuted for the sake of righteousness, that we rejoice and be glad for our reward is in heaven. And brothers and sisters, the kingdom is ours. Amen.